With a condition called testicular torsion, the spermatic cord twists, which can then lead to decreased blood flow to the testes. If it goes undiagnosed and untreated, there can be irreversible damage to the testes. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchlani, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I have with me two authors of a practice article on testicular torsion published in CMAJ. Dr. Hans Rosenberg is an emergency physician at the Ottawa Hospital, and Dr. Melise Keyes is a pediatric urologist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. They are here to tell us what to look for and how testicular torsion should be treated. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Let's start by having you each tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. So as you said, my name is uh, Hans Rosenberg. I'm an emergency physician at the Ottawa Hospital. I work mostly in uh, adult emergency medicine and uh, have been doing it now officially for just over 10 years. My name is Melise Keys. I'm a pediatric urologist at uh, CHEO, and um, I'm one of uh, about 35 pediatric urologists across the country, so we're a small group. So why do you want to write this article on testicular torsion for CMAJ? So for me as an emergency physician, I once I got thinking about this rare condition with an associated very high morbidity, uh, it just felt like it was sort of the classic emergency medicine type of diagnoses that we love. It's rare, but you have to keep it in your differential diagnoses. If not, you'll miss it. And if you miss it, the the associated impact can be so huge that it's one of these things that I'm constantly thinking about on shift when I see patients who present with lower abdominal pain or any kind of scrotal pain. I'm constantly teaching about it. And it just seemed something that was very appropriate for me to uh, have a you know more thought process about and, and think about it a little more. And fortunately, I happen to be friends with a pediatric urologist and you know, some light discussion over coffee or, or drinks led to us thinking that maybe this was uh, something we could do. Um, so I'm, like I mentioned, a, a member of the Pediatric Urologists of Canada, and we just returned from our annual meeting in Quebec City, and we were talking about what can we as a group do to make sure that no Canadian teenager or male loses a testicle unnecessarily. And one of the key pieces we think in the puzzle is um, not what we can do in terms of the surgery itself, but really looking at why do people take a long time to come in? Why are there delays to presenting to hospital? And, you know, there's the very rare cases with an atypical presentation where the diagnosis gets missed. And uh, I think that's the point of the paper, really honing in on those uh, physical exam and history questions uh, and also emphasizing our role as leaders in uh, making sure that children and families and uh, adults, young adults, know about the condition. You mentioned that the condition itself is rare. Just how rare is it and how often is it being missed? Different studies say it, it'll occur about 1 in 2,000 to 1 in 4,000 men. Um, in terms of reasons it gets missed, missed in terms of a late presentation, the most common reason is embarrassment or lack of awareness of the symptoms. Someone who feels testicular pain or abdominal pain and just hopes it'll go away. It can sometimes occur in the middle of the night. They don't want to wake somebody up. Uh, they're embarrassed to tell their family members or even in the ER, they might not even tell uh, the physician that their testicle hurts. And then there's also uh, in younger children, the nonverbal children who can't say my testicle hurts. And rarely where a testicular exam is not done. 
What is testicular torsion and in what age groups does it most commonly occur? So testicular torsion is a sudden twisting of the testicular vessels, which left uncorrected leads to eventual loss of testicular function or death of the testicle. It primarily affects peripubertal males, teenagers, and young adults. Usually when you see first signs of puberty, so Tanner stage two or more, that would be the highest risk population. Uh, in terms of who else it can happen to, it can rarely happen to newborn babies or infants. These are difficult presentations. With the newborns, uh, the key features to know whether it's a new torsion would be the documentation of a normal newborn testicular exam and sudden change after birth. Some babies are born with a swollen testicle, which may actually represent a prenatal event. So none of those are actually savable. So the only newborns with testicular torsion that could be possibly rescued would be those that had a normal documented birth exam. Right. So those with a normal documented birth exam, they're likely to present to you. Whereas the, the other type of patient, is that a congenital problem? So the, uh, the condition where the testicle twists before birth, most patients actually present with no swelling at all. And they present with a non-palpable right. testicle or nubbin. Uh, so that would actually be reclassified as a non-palpable undescended testicle. So it's, it's a little bit different than what the article talks about, but it's, it's part of the same problem. Right. And do we know why testicular torsion happens? So there are a few theories, but really um, none of them have been repeatedly shown to be true. Uh, we know that having an underlying anatomic anomaly called a bell clapper deformity occurs in about 10% of males, but not that many have torsion. Sometimes there's a family history, but again, if you have a family history, it doesn't mean that you yourself will have one. And then there are the other rare theories, uh, sudden uh, exposure to cold weather, brisk activation of the cremasteric reflex. An example would be playing soccer and a near miss where the testicle suddenly moves up and provokes this torsion. But really, it can happen at rest. So it's really hard to say that there's an underlying reason this can happen. And really, when patients ask us, could we have done anything to prevent this? I, our answer is usually no. And in line with that, are there any particularly modifiable or non-modifiable risk factors? The only one that I would mention is the male with uh, preceding intermittent torsion. So this is a really tough clinical uh, catch. So a patient who's presenting with sudden onset, severe pain lasting several minutes that goes away, uh, I often get them when they've come to the ER, they had testicular pain for 30 minutes, seen by the ER physician, the exam was normal, they're sent home. By the time they come to my office, they'll say that it may have happened, you know, two, three times in their life. These are the boys that may go on to have a full torsion. Um, the problem is that diagnosis is not easy to make. Uh, and other problems can present in a similar way, like groin pain, inguinal hernia, so really, when they show up in that acute moment, I think it's really important to elicit a really good history, uh, document it as best you can, and the decision on whether or not to prophylactically do a, a orcupexy to prevent torsion is in a very select group of patients with a very convincing history. What time frame are we talking about in terms of repeated episodes, which may or may not ultimately lead to a uh, testicular torsion for, for that category of patients? So the prophylactic orcupexy in patients with possible intermittent torsion, for me, 
is very rare. The the main ones that um, we will offer surgery is if you actually caught a detorsion event. So on ultrasound in the ER where it was manly reduced uh, by the ER physician or someone who's actually experiencing very frequent episodes. So once a week, they are crumpled over in class in severe pain. They throw up and there's nothing else on the differential diagnosis. Those are the kids that I would actually recommend doing a prophylactic gorchiopexy because if I'm doing the wrong surgery, I'm putting them through, you know, a recovery period and, you know, an anesthetic that they may not have benefited from. But some of them, it's a very classic case and we would recommend surgery. And what are the typical symptoms of testicular torsion? You've alluded to some already, but what's the full spectrum? Sure. So here is uh, where we'll usually see a relatively rapid onset of testicular pain, lower abdominal pain, as we've mentioned, nausea or vomiting can accompany it, and then, of course, swelling of the affected testicle. I think this is one case that we really need to, again, highlight that when you have the, you know, a young man, usually young man for me or, or you know, peripubertal or, or teen who presents with lower abdominal pain, you must consider this in your differential diagnosis. If they haven't told you about their uh, testicle and, and w- what's going on, you ask them and it should be a part of your exam to make sure that you check it out. But really the symptoms are going to lead you to consider it in the differential and then you're going to perform a, a very good exam. I've had a case of a young man, you know, uh, early 20s, presented to triage. They actually thought he was a renal colic because he, was, he just said he had terrible lower abdominal pain, was nauseous, was vomiting. Once I finally saw him, uh, it just didn't have the right feel of, of renal colic. So I actually asked him and I said, you know, uh, any changes in your penis or testicles? And he kind of nodded a bit. I said, do you mind if I examine? He let me examine him. And of course, unfortunately, he had this very large hemiscrotum, you know, about the size of a peach. And then later on, confirmed testicular torsion, where as far as I recall, I don't think the testicle was salvageable at that time. So really key for my emergency medicine colleagues, general practitioners, family doctors, general pediatricians, keep it in mind in in your patients with lower abdominal pain. And are there certain symptoms that one age group of patients might experience over a different age group of patients, or are they generally that's the full spectrum that all patients will experience? I think in the teenager or the older patient, it's really that history of out of nowhere, sudden, severe pain. Unfortunately, in babies uh, or uh, toddlers, they often have several days of fussiness and, um, you know, they don't notice the testicle issue until it's actually too late. So by the time that there's actually scrotal edema, redness of the scrotum, um, where I trained in the U.S., they used to have a saying, uh, red means dead. So if it gets to the point that the, the testicle skin has uh, turned red, it's a really bad prognostic sign. And whilst you're thinking about a suspected um, testicular torsion, what other diagnosis must be considered with someone who presents with similar symptoms? So really, this is, again, you know, a classic differential diagnosis that we need to keep aware of and think about in terms of the acute scrotum. Of course, testicular torsion is right at the top of it, but we're also going to think of a very common scenario where you'll see torsion of the appendix testes, epididymoarchitis. You may see tumors that can present that way, trauma, hydrocele,s varicoceles, hernias, and Another one that one must consider, very rare, but we do see it, is Fournier's gangrene as well. How is testicular torsion diagnosed? 
So I think this is a, a two-part question in the sense that there's the initial assessment by uh, the first physician, whoever that might be, in my case a, as an emergency physician. I think the biggest factor is actually uh, listening to the patient, getting that good history, then doing a good scrotal exam and testicular exam where you're going to look for swelling, hopefully not redness, but it could be there, tenderness, and then a testes with either a horizontal lie or that it's high riding. Finally, we always want to check the cremasteric reflex. Although it's not 100% indicative one way or the other, it can be highly predictive of either a testes that is not torted um, or perhaps considering uh, another diagnosis. If you notice that the cremasteric reflex is present at that time, doesn't mean that it's not there. It's just one of the things that you, you are now going to consider further. I could add to that. Um, so in our center, our ER physicians have adopted um, use of the TWIST score, uh, which was initially developed by a group from Brazil and Harvard and validated by a, a group that I worked with in Dallas. Uh, so what we found was if you assess these physical exam findings, a swollen testicle, two points, a hard testicle, two points, presence of nausea, vomiting, one point, high riding testis, another point, and absence of cremasteric reflex. If you have seven out of seven, in 100% of our cases, it was a confirmed testicular torsion. Please note that this would only include patients with the right history. So sometimes a testicular tumor could look like this. So really, it does also involve the history portion. And in patients with a score of zero, we found not a single testicular torsion. So in the next steps where we talk about the ultrasound diagnosis, this is a score that we use to decide who might actually jump ahead and skip an ultrasound and move straight to surgery if necessary. And in patients with a really reassuring uh, physical exam, might be able to be discharged without even getting an ultrasound. And what about patients who have a partial score? So let's say a score of three to four, how would they be uh, next investigated or managed? So I think that's a great point. I think this is the type of patient where we can actually try to get at that ultrasound as soon as possible done in the emergency department. And and it's really going to be a, a, a process where you may have a quick phone call discussion if you're unsure with your uh, urologist on call and, and let them know what's going on so they can be prepared. You talk to your radiologist, make sure that you can get a timely ultrasound done if there's going to be some delays for some, you know, unforeseen uh, circumstance, you get a trauma at the same time, who knows, something that takes up your radiology department, you need to be aware of that as well. So I, I, I think this is one of those cases where at least for us, you know, we have computer entry for our ultrasounds and things like that. It's a time to actually have that discussion with your radiologist, make sure it can be done in a timely fashion while they're in the eMERGE. If you're in the community, if you're a, a family doctor, if you're a, a general practitioner and you don't have ultrasound available to you, that's the kind of patient that has to come to the eMERGE and, and get checked out and get a very urgent ultrasound done. Great. And is there any value in doing any tests or any other investigations? The only one I would add is um, some of these patients do need a urinalysis. So cases of epididymal orchitis, you can have a very bad uh, sexually transmitted infection that presents like a torsion. And in children specifically, um, we'll have cases that um, will not be a testicular torsion that look like an epididymal orchitis. Those patients absolutely should have a urinalysis. If the urinalysis is bland, most cases may not actually be a true infectious epididymal orchitis. They can occasionally be 
a very small torsed appendix that causes a severe reaction that looks almost like a testicular torsion. But the nice thing about knowing that is that they don't need any antibiotic therapy. So these patients are treated with NSAIDs and REST. And actually, in our opinion, it doesn't really require any longitudinal urology follow-up for a torsed appendix. And um, we would consider just a short-term follow-up with a family physician to make sure that the swelling is resolving in the appropriate amount of time. Any blood tests to do for these patients? So for a, a confirmed torsion, no. The only patient that would require blood test and also an ultrasound, of course, is someone you're suspecting of a testicular tumor. So if you're suspecting a testicular tumor, in that case, we would do tumor markers, which are beta HCG, LDH, AFP. And in severe cases, you may actually be getting liver function extended, um, the whole spectrum of blood work. But this is for cases where you know testicular torsion, I would say no additional blood work is necessary unless there's other comorbidities. And I think the overall message here so far is that if I was a generalist, say a family physician, a pediatrician, or a doctor working in the emergency department, I should refer this patient as soon as possible to the emergency department or straight to urology. Um, is there a time-sensitive nature of this, or how, is it best to send an urgent referral in? I think everything is very situational. So I think the one tool that I really like for community providers, if you have someone with uh, you know, a slightly red testicle that hurts, but it's a bug bite, and you do your twist score, and it's a twist score of zero, you don't have to send that family to the emergency department and, you know, set the alarm bells off. Um, any patient where you have a, a high suspicion of torsion, we usually say that under six hours is the ideal window with over 90% of those testicles being saved. Patients waiting over 24 hours, you're looking at probably less than five, less than 10% of testicles being saved that are actually twisted. In terms of what's the right way to do it, that's a very individual uh, healthcare system question. So in my particular hospital, we have access to ultrasound readily available. We have ER physicians and we have uh, pediatric urologists on call 24-7. So the way we will order ultrasounds and triage people is dependent on whether that ultrasound is ready to go, how long that patient has been waiting. And I think if it's not clear to you in your own system how that works, who will do which surgery in which age group, it's a conversation worth having. So if you have a 17-year-old that's four hours away from the pediatric hospital with a torsion, do you have a local provider who's willing to do those cases? That's something you want to know before the event happens. So that's a, a local issue. And uh, similarly with um, transfers, if you are arranging a transfer, I think it is best to call ahead, let people know what's going on so we can make sure that everything's ready to go when the patient arrives. And I think as an emergency physician, if I'm getting a, ever a phone call from the community from whether it's a pediatrician or a, a family doctor, you know, this is a type of case that we're more than happy for patients to please get sent in. We will arrange the ultrasound. We will help facilitate with that. It's not one of those types of diagnoses that I think somebody who's in the community should be struggling with and going, oh, should I just watch it myself? You know, if it's one of the, the possible diagnoses, you must get that patient into to an emergency department to start to get that imaging to start um, if necessary, unless it's such a high probability that maybe our pediatric urology colleagues, like uh, Melise was saying, with a twist score of six or seven might actually directly go to the OR on in certain cases. Thank you. That's some really helpful advice, particularly for colleagues who um, who worked in district general hospitals or don't necessarily work in tertiary centers where all the resources are available a bit more easily. 
Is there any special considerations for when children or young men go to surgery? Yes. So when we meet them in the emergency department, one of the things we'll do is, like Dr. Rosenberg mentioned, is take the history, look at the interval of time, how long they've been in acute pain, um, if the skin is red. um, And then the other factor we look at is on ultrasound, uh, there are some predictors of whether the testicle will be dead. So we talk about a uh, homogeneous appearance of the testicle, so a very similarly appearing gray color with no flow on ultrasound. Uh, when the testicle looks heterogeneous, so a patchy gray and light white, that's a very advanced presentation sign. So when I see that, I usually warn the families that there's a, a good chance that the testicle will not be savable. In the OR, what we look at is the color. So we've actually published on different colors being predictive of how much the testicle will shrink if you leave it in. If it is completely dead, the recovery is a lot easier if we remove it and possibly beneficial for long-term health. So those are actually removed. And uh, what we'll do, especially in cases of a removal, is recommend tacking the other side down. If you're living with a solitary testicle, we would not want the disaster situation where you lose the other side. So when you lose a testicle, of course, the other side will get tacked down. And even when the testicle is saved, there is a high likelihood that the other can also have a torsion. So in general, in my practice, I do recommend fixing both. So tacking down both sides at this time of surgery. Is there anything we can do to prevent testicular torsion or to see it coming from a fall? I would say we can't prevent the testicular torsion. Today, there's no evidence to tell us how we can prevent this terrible condition. But I think as a system, we can set uh, things in place so that if someone comes in with a very suggestive case of torsion, that the delay from triage to ER physician can be decreased. So there are papers out there saying that using the TWIST score has been validated in non-physicians. So I think this is something we should think of Uh, in terms of adding further delay um, in terms of getting ultrasounds. I think if there will add three, four hours to get an ultrasound in a teenager with a twist score of seven, that's probably inappropriate. And we should ask ourselves why, why we would be doing that. And I think really our goal should be that no uh, testicle is lost. I think we do our best with public education so that when it happens, people know that something like this can occur, that the testicle can twist. And if you don't say something, it can die. So I think Uh, in our daily interactions with our patients as part of a routine check, just asking about general testicular health or uh, sexual health is always uh, an important thing to do. And can I just clarify, currently with the evidence that we do have um, and through our audits, where is the most likely delay to occur? Is that from patient symptom to presentation? Or is there a suggestion that there's lots of systems-related factors that play into this as well? We've seen a a series of papers. Most of the ER delays in Canada uh, or, you know, from triage to ultrasound to OR, we're looking at under the window of time. So none of these are really over the six hour mark. So I really do think it's getting them through the door. There are small improvements we can make in our system. And then um, I think the one that Dr. Rosenberg mentioned that was very important, if someone comes in with an atypical case and there's no testicular exam done, and get sent home. That's the rare case where they were in our hands and we let them go. So I think it's really important that our trainees know, don't be shy. If there's any suspicion of testicular torsion, you ask to do the testicular exam. You ask those questions to make sure that we don't let them leave. Really important message uh, for our listeners. Is there anything else you'd like to tell readers of the CMAJ? 
I think one of the things that are worth mentioning, and, and we on purpose left this out of our top five things article, but it is the rare case. And, and actually Canada being such a large country, there are, there can be massive delays in getting, say, a child from somewhere really up north, uh, down to a tertiary care hospital is the question of whether a physician should try to do a reduction of a torta testes themselves. So what is classically taught is you think of sort of the midline as a spine of a book, and then essentially you're opening the book, so turning the testes away from the midline as you're trying to detort. Now, this can sometimes make a torsion worse because you don't know if the, the torsion actually occurred in the opposite direction of the classic uh, classic torta testy. However, if you have, you know, a four, six, eight hour delay until you're act, you're going to be able to get that uh, patient to a surgeon who can correct the condition, then this may be something worth trying for our colleagues who just don't have access to it. But if you're five minutes away from uh, our pediatric hospital or our, our adult hospital, I don't think that's something that uh, Dr. Keyes would generally suggest people do. And even for the emergency physician, who has those resources, that's probably not something that they would do either. Great. Thank you for joining me today. I've been speaking with Dr. Hans Rosenberg, an emergency physician at the Ottawa Hospital, and Dr. Melise Keyes, a pediatric urologist at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchloni, Associate Editor for CMHA. Thank you for listening.